You're listening to the Deepening Your Practice podcast with George Haas. For more information, visit www.metagroup.org. That's www.mettagroup.org. So, welcome everybody. This is Deepening Your Practice. Deepening Your Practice is intended as an intermediate or advanced class. And what that really means is I don't teach basic meditation. I expect you already to know that. That being said, if you find that I'm talking about something and you don't understand what I'm talking about, I'm happy to answer any questions. I'm just not going to routinely cover the basics. We've been going through um, the Manual of Insight, which is a new translation of the Mahasi Sayadaw text um, by the Vipassana Metta Foundation, which is on uh, how to do Karnaka Samadhi. Karnaka Samadhi is a Pali word that's often translated as momentary concentration insight practice. So um, you have your tranquility path, which would be uh, concentration practice first, and once you're able to attain access concentration or jhana, then you would go into insight practice. In momentary concentration insight practice, you begin first with insight practice, and then by doing the insight practice, develop enough concentration to be able to have the fruits of insight practice. That's the idea. <clears throat> We're talking about uh, the development of mindfulness and um, uh, been talking about the defilements and today uh, the topic is sense experience without implosion. Implosion, this is page 159 if you I have a text with you. Implosion means that the uh, pure sensing experience and the thing that you make it into is uh, defiled by defilements attaching to the, the sensing experience. The following section is included to show the mental process of seeing may not stop at determining. For a mature, strong meditator, if there is unwise attention when an object enters through the eye door or any other door, his or her mind will fall into life continuum without arousing any defilements after sustaining for two or three determining mind moments. This is how it is for a meditator at the peak of practice. Um, So if we were to take that apart... um, you have the capacity to sense. So you ha- we really talk about this as six senses. And what we're talking about here really is the development of equanimity in all six uh, sense gates. Um, in seeing, as an example of that, when you have the capacity or the sensitivity to see, you have an object that can be seen when they meet contact of the, uh, between the, the sensing object or form and the capacity to sense meet a consciousness of that sensing experience arises which awareness knows. Is that making sense in terms of breaking this down? If there was an object in the room that we didn't have the capacity to sense, we wouldn't know that it was here. If there's no light in the room at any given moment, then there's no object for the seeing aspect of sensing to be able to see or make contact with, and so no sensing experience would arise from that. Um, For a mature meditator, 
if there is an unwise attention when an object enters through the eye door or any other door, his or her mind will fall into life continuum without arousing any defilements after sustaining for two or three determining mind moments. Um, this is how it is for a meditator at peak practice. So the flow of the sensing experience we might use as a term for life continuum without arising defilements. Or another way to put that is that you're in a place of equanimity. That in the moment of seeing, you're seeing, you're sensing the seeing, and the thing that you make the sensing experience into is an accurate representation of the sensing experience, and there's no craving, aversion, or unconsciousness associated with it. You're purely equanimous in this process of sensing and making the sensing into something. Is that making sense? You're following me on this? So a strong or a mature meditator can sit and notice the sensing experience and know the thing that the sensing experience represents without craving aversion or unconsciousness attaching to it and just be in an equanimous state with the sensing experience as it arises and passes. But there might still be um, awareness Yes, the Vedna aspect is still there, but that's part of the sensing. So sensing and then the Vedna aspect or feeling tone aspect, uh, and then the thing that you make it into, which proceeds through the mind state. And so what we're again uh, pointing our attention to here is what is the quality of mind that is present as we we make the thing. Uh-huh. So is it so you can still have pools and be in flow, right? And in some sense the pool, the contractive energy of the pool is a kind of PT, contractive PT. Right. Sometimes you can have like the contractive PT somewhere and then also flow elsewhere. So like sometimes totally. it feels like there can be aversion in a pool but flow elsewhere in your body, is that well if you're in aversion to the sensing experience, then the defilements have attached, and you would not be considered what they're calling here a strong meditator in that sense. So pools not necessarily aversion? No, you could have uh, an awareness of the contractive energy of the pool, you could have a Vedna or feeling tone that was unpleasant, and then you would still be in peace with it, still be in equanimity with it. Uh, essentially that's where we're, we're attempting to get to. If the mind is equanimous, then the representation that we make out of the sensing experience tends to be pretty accurate. And if we're not equanimous, then some mind state is affecting how we've created the experience of the present moment. Pretty much what we're saying. For another type of meditator in this situation, a men mental process accompanied by defilements arises. At the end of that mental process, he or she realizes that the mind is accompanied by defilement and so starts to note it. Then, during the second mental process, the mind is free of the defilement. So, I have you often do the technique of triple noting, right? First, you're noting for sensory clarity. What is the activation of the sensing, see, hear, or feel? We do a basic division. Then I have you note for Vedna or feeling tone. Is the sensing experience itself pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? And then I have you note for uh, craving, aversion, unconsciousness, and equanimity. 
And you may notice that when the uh, sensing experience arises in, in, in the mind, uh, craving, aversion, or unconsciousness may be attached to it, but that as you continue to note that experience, it may shift eventually into equanimity. Have you had that experience? That's what we're talking about here. So the strong meditator is able to purify the mind enough that even if there's a, a, a conditioned response to the experience of the present moment um, from the past in the present moment because of their their uh, mindfulness it comes in without the defilement and if you're not such a strong meditator what you may notice is that it may arise with a defilement but after mo- noting it for a period of two or three times that it shifts into a place of equanimity. Is that clear? For yet another type of meditator, only at the end of the second mental process does he or she realize that the mind is accompanied by defilement and so starts to note it. Then during the third mental process, the mind is free of the defilement. So in the beginning, you may be having trouble discerning whether what the, the sensory clarity aspect is. Is it see, hear, or feel? And then you may have trouble discerning whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And then uh, in the third... Uh, investigation, is the mind uh, equanimous or is there craving, aversion and unconsciousness uh, present? If you, so that as soon as you discern all of that, then you arrive at whether there's a defilement there or not and then you can begin to note the defilement and attempt to come into equanimity with it. Is that making sense? So this is describing three types of meditators, uh, are the first-class meditator, one at the highest level of mature insight meditation, a second-class meditator, one at the intermediate level of mature insight meditation, and a third-class meditator, (laughs) one at the lower level of mature insight practice. So, looking around, are the accommodations luxurious? Are they just sort of basic, or is it like a cattle car? Um, so in the beginning um, it is the sensory clarity piece that's going you may not even have uh, the discernment really to notice the the differences between see, hear and feel and then as you develop that then it may be difficult to discern whether the the sensing experience itself is pleasant or unpleasant or neutral and then as your your, uh, discernment improves then you'll be able to track all of these things and also bring yourself into equanimity. Um, is that making sense? We, uh, of course, pretend that we live in a classless society. <laughs> there, there's the really rich people who we don't even really ever experience and all of the rest of us. Which I think is. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) It's very funny. I was talking about the prison system in this country on retreat. And I thought I characterized it pretty well. And then I was coming home and listening to uh, Chris Hedges' uh, Wages of Rebellion. And I realized that I, 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 I did a very poor presentation on how awful the prison system in this country is. 
I mean, I thought I sugar-coated it by the end of it. average wage of a prison worker is 23 cents an hour <clears throat> and because you don't have any constitutional rights when you're in prison you can't refuse to work what would you call that um, regarding the second and third types of meditators the translation of the original Pali passage is clear enough and no additional explanation is needed for the first type of meditator, due to repeated insight practice, even if the mind moment that averts to a sense object arises with one unwise attention, it is not strong enough to take the object clearly. Um, this is also the case where subsequent mind moments of the five physical consciousnesses, that, that which perceive the sense object and that which investigates the sense object. As a result, the determining mind moment that is also called the mind door averting consciousness is not able to determine the sense object clearly. It occurs two or three times repeatedly considering the sense object that is referred to in this verse as after subsisting for. However, because the sense object cannot be determined after two or three times, the mental units of implosion do not arise in life con continuum arises. <clears throat> I sometimes think that monk speak is completely impenetrable, you know. Um, but what they're talking about, in the second and third types of meditators, or the, the beginning meditators and the intermediate meditators, um, these uh, subtle aspects of um, uh, sensing, purely sensing, uh, Vedna, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and then the mind state may be harder to detect, and then you have the thing that you make it into. That's pretty clear. Even beginner meditators can get it. So these subtle aspects that they're talking about here are then reserved only for advanced meditators. Um, <clears throat> that is to say, in the beginning, the resolution of what you can detect in your meditation practice is going to be pretty gross. And then as your practice continues, it'll become more refined, more refined, more refined, and more nuanced in terms of what it is that you can detect there. The instruction is always what is easy and obvious to note. And so you're just going really with where uh, or how far you've developed your practice. And so the caution here is that the conversation for uh, around these subtler aspects or more nuanced aspects of practice. If you're a beginning or intermediate meditator, you probably won't be able to detect them. So not to fret if this is the case. Uh, just use it as a signpost that this is an investigation further on or down the line. Um, what we're beginning to talk about, though, in this in the advanced practice is really the awareness of what the, the mind state is that's there. Um, is it a craving mind? Is it an aversive mind? Is it a, a consciousness that arises? But then there's, uh, is the mind restless? Is the mind slothful? Is the mind doubtful? 
um, we could talk about this in terms of the, the, the hierarchy of mind states that reflect spiritual maturity <clears throat> and these would be in the beginning the recognition that you have a mind state and that other people have a mind state. Have you gotten that far in, in the development where you understand that your mind state and how you perceive things is not universal? Um, in the beginning, really, uh, it's, it's ordinary to run into people who think that they experience how it is and they don't understand that their conditioning is largely responsible for how they experience it. And that because everyone else's condition is different, conditioning is different, everyone else is experiencing it differently through the lens of their conditioning and that there isn't a universal experience that we're all having. Is that making sense? And then the second one is to begin to understand whether or not your perception of what's happening is accurate or not. And this is this basic back and forth, constantly going back and forth between what sense, what's, what sensing experience you're having and what you're making the sensing experience into. If you keep going back and forth like this, it reveals the mind state or the filter. And if you can see what the filter is, then you have this, uh, this luxury of acting differently. If you, if you can't see the filtering uh, and that you think that the, the experience that you're having in the moment is an accurate reflection, and as the choices of what you can do in that moment arise, you may take them as if the, the perception that you have of the present moment is an accurate reflection of it. <clears throat> um, we are conditioned, and a lot of us hold somatic emotion in the body from the past. Something happens in the present moment, let's say there's a reaction of, uh, three, three, level three sadness and then there's a resonance in the pool of sadness that's been unresolved of uh, level seven if you don't see clearly that the old stuff is resonating and the new stuff is resonating they can conflate and then you'll have the experience of level ten sadness and then you may take an action in the present moment that is motivated by level 10 sadness, which will be totally out of sync with what's actually happening, but you won't be able to tell. You may, may not tell even having taken that action and demand of the present moment that it relieve level 10 sadness when actually the present moment is only responsible for level 3. And so even if people respond to you in an attempt to relieve the sadness of the present moment, it will be insufficient to relieve the sadness of the past and you will be unsatisfied with their response and, and find them lacking in their, their sensitivity to you. Is that making sense? So it really becomes very important to be able to tell what, what, what's happening uh, in that um, process of investigating the mind state through this back and forth. Does that increase your level, your, your sense of somatic pain? So you said it's a level 7, now it's, it's uh, exaggerated to a level 10. Do they well, see that as a level 10? And then they, some of that inside, somaticize some of that stuff? Well, the somaticized emotion you want to understand as old and not, can, it, it's triggered by the recognition of a similar pattern of experience, but it isn't the cause of it. 
so that what you want to do is create a spaciousness around it so that the, the old stuff can just release in the background and not inform your actions in the present moment. If you know that the mind state is distorted by the mind state of sadness and you can remember when the mind state isn't distorted by the mind state of sadness, you can take an action that's actually in line with the, uh, the present moment and resolve the present moment in a way that you couldn't if, if you couldn't distinguish that. That seems like an important distinction. Mm-hmm. And you can feel, you know, in the beginning, often, um, particularly if you've uh, uh, needed to repress awareness of the old stuff, you may not even know that it's there. In the beginning, as we bring sensitivity or investigation into the body, noticing the, what the physical sensations are and beginning to discern them, you know, if you're using, say, for instance, a dismissing attachment strategy, the main uh, method that you have for regulating your emotion is to suppress awareness of them. It doesn't mean that you're not feeling them, it just means that you don't, you're not aware that you're feeling them, and it doesn't mean that they aren't affecting the choices that you make. Uh, they, they are. You're just not aware of, of them. Why would I react that way? My, my brother's... Um, my older brother would t- make these terrible decisions and then he would say uh, I didn't want that to happen <laughs> even though you couldn't reason with him while he was in the process of doing it because he wasn't conscious of what was driving his decision making that making sense um <clears throat> So the process then is for us to gradually become sensitive to the uh, arising of the mind state so that we can be able to to see what it is. Um, This type of mental process is called a mental process that ends with determining. It can occur only in the case of sense objects, but not only in case of sense objects, but also for mental objects. Objects um, are not experienced clearly in this kind of mental process. One just experiences a general sense of seeing, hearing, or thinking. After emerging from the life continuum, there arises at the mind door an insight-based mental process that notes the not very distinct seeing. For such a meditator, wholesome and unwholesome mental processes do not occur at all by way of the five sense doors. Mental processes of insight implosion arise only at the mind door. So and then we would be moving into the the conversation around sixfold equanimity. Sixfold equanimity means that you have equanimity in all six sense gates at the same time. <clears throat> but what I really want to be clear about uh, here is this same process of sensing the feeling tone aspect, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, uh, and then uh, whether that is then translated economously into a representation of what's there without the defilements arising in it. And then to be able to easily recognize when the defilements are there and bring your attention to the defilements and attempt to come into equanimity even if they are there. And this gives you a reflection of the mind state. 
the mind state, it's, I think filter is a really good word. Um, these, uh, I, I have sunglasses, they're transitional lenses, and in the bright sun they turn brown. I like brown lenses because they make the, the world vivid. You know, reds look incredibly red. Everything looks heightened, and I, I like that. But I'm also aware that that isn't an accurate reflection of the world. The world is distorted by that. But if you're not aware that brown lenses change the way everything looks, you might think that the world, in fact, is that vivid in color. And so beginning to track what the mind state is allows you then to know how the quality of the experience of self and world has been distorted through the mind state. In, a, in an advanced practitioner, you would know all of that and be equanimous with it. You'd be in equanimity with it, or you would know when the mind state was there that was distorting it. And in the beginning, really what you're trying to do is figure all of that out by teasing things apart. So you'll know where you are in terms of your practice based on how well you can do that. And it just comes from practicing. The more you practice, the greater the discernment is, the more refined the, the sensing experiences are that you can have. Uh, and then this begins to unfold into a place where you can simply be equanimous with whatever the sensing experience is. Is that making sense? Uh, part, of that, uh, part of that explanation is, is an encouragement to practice um, because um, <clears throat> you suffer less, right? If you identify with the sadness and the, the way, the quality of the experience of the world, and then you begin to take actions from this place of great suffering, then, then you create a karma that is un taking you more likely into places of even more suffering. I like to talk about karma as the next choices you have after you've taken an action. <clears throat> have you ever yelled at somebody and then calmly examined the next choices you have in the relationship? Have you ever uh, reacted to somebody with great kindness and then examined the next choices that you have in the relationship? Um, have you ever showed up reliably in a relationship and noticed what choices, uh, what offers are available to you in that relationship? Have you ever showed up uh, unreliably in a relationship and noticed what those choices are that come? Did you act unreliably because you had a mind state that, that said that that would be totally acceptable or, or actually was justified in doing it, even though later when you had a different mind state you could see something different. So this is what we're talking about. You take actions based on your perception of the conditions of the present moment and so it's important to be able to tell how you're creating the experience of the present moment in the translation of sensing into the thing that you make. The thing that you make is a recognition of patterns and uh, if you can recognize something that means that you've experienced it before. So in your database uh, that you compare all of the sensing experiences to, not only is the pattern recognition there but also the history of 
the response that you made to that pattern of experience and the outcome of it, unless you're dissociative. Dissociative people don't tend to learn from their their choices because they dissociate the outcome of the experience so it doesn't get put into the database. And then the body-mind examines all of that, all of those uh, previous experiences of that pattern of experience and all of the previous actions that you've taken on it and then the, the outcomes and then it formulates your response and that's how your, your choices come up. So if we, we begin to look at early conditioning um, and your, this early relationship with your primary caregiver the, the central core of your database on what to do is going to be based on that relationship. The automatic uh, unconscious processing that patterns all of this stuff is, is starts really early. So the basic understanding of self and the basic understanding of how other people respond to you is this very early, under the age of three life, which you probably don't remember. In relationships, the early conditioning in relationships really starts about five years old. And so your understanding of how relationship or the pattern of relationship is going to go forward uh, really starts with this early relational experience when when you had uh, agency and were able to begin to choose the people that you wanted to associate with. You know uh, the term parallel play? Parallel play uh, is a thing that young children will play next to each other, but there's no collaboration between them in the play. And it isn't really until four or five years of age that the collaboration comes in. And that as soon as you're collaborating in play or collaborating in relationship with someone else, that database on how relationships are going to go for you begins to be formed. So we want to... if we continue on the, the, the exploration of mind states uh, and spiritual maturity after accuracy is an understanding that your mind state has an effect on someone else and their mind state has an effect on you, that you can use uh, thoughts to regulate experience. This is what I like to call self-generated emotion, that you think thoughts that are meant to change or regulate your mind state. Uh, finding meaning, what is meaningful to you out of the things that happen and what is not meaningful. Uh, Have you organized your life in such a way that you're focused on these activities that have meaning to you or are you not focused in that way? If you look um, at how our conditioning affects that, if you have a sense that you are good enough, then you have a sense that the world is safe, and that you, you, you can explore it and people will be happy to share in that exploration with you, it makes a very different trajectory in how you uh, explore. If you think that nobody is really interested in your exploration and there's nothing really you can do to get people to be interested in you, which is one of the responses that is typical in, uh, to a, a neglecting uh, parent, then you begin to evaluate what's important to explore, explore based not so much on what has meaning to you, but what has social value. And you'll find that 
people who have had the experience of profound neglect in their early life pursue things that have high social value whether they have meaning or not because that they have a sense of power or they have a sense of reflected uh, value in, in doing that. So by social meaning, you mean things like career, job, right. professional Co- success? Right, sort of that yeah. sort of thing. Do you... Uh, do you prefer, do you pursue social work or cancer uh, medicine, right? Uh, social work, your your yearly salary will be $45,000, and in, in cancer medicine, your yearly salary will be five to seven million dollars. <laughs> Which one do you pick? Do you find... Um, it's so ordinary for people who are super successful to find no meaning in, in the success. They, they become despairing when they get the thing that they've been after because it doesn't provide for them the thing that they were actually looking for, which was meaning, even though they get a lot of accolades from it. And actually what's meaningful to you is going to be based on who you are and your, your conditioning and, and how you are, which is unique in, in that way. Can you let go of the... um, For instance, when I was in the film business, when I really investigated it, I was looking for power to get revenge. And that was what I was interested in, in pursuing uh, motion pictures. This is not the most... If you take that out of the equation, the movie business sucks. Anybody in the movie business? (laughs) So what are you doing there? What are you actually... Doing there, I made a decision that I would no longer work with assholes, which meant I would no longer work. <laughs> anyway, you get you get my drift on this. <clears throat> One of the 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 so the beginning. That's the beginning set of of spiritual maturity is recognizing those mind states. If we go into the intermediate group and just touch on one, it's recognizing that the past affects the perception of the present moment. Um, Have you ever been in a situation where uh, the present moment reminds you of the past and then you're flooded with the unresolved experience of the past? And if you don't really keep them separate, all of a sudden you're not in the present moment anymore. You're in the past and you're acting and responding to the present moment as if you were still in the past. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so then this is this, this, this intermediate level of, of practice is where you're seeing this is the present moment and this is the past and there's enough space so that the actions you're taking are related only to the conditions of the present moment and aren't informed by the, the conditions of the past. And so that's really what we're talking about in terms of the, this, this investigation of back and forth between the sensing experience and what you make, and in that back and forth it kind of reveals the filter or the mind state that's there. Anybody ever do black and white photography? So I know it's an arcane thing. Maybe you do color uh, photography and and color digital photography and then put it in Photoshop and switch it to black and white and then you can 
I maybe understand. But back in the day, <laughs> back in the day when we were doing, um, you know, black and white film and processing and whatnot, um, if your eye was sensitive enough, you could tell what filters they that you put on it because it changed the ratio of detail in the shadow to the highlight. If you put a red filter on, for instance, black and white film, it created extreme contrast. Um, uh, for instance, um, it would make a blue sky almost black in the image. So maybe you, you've seen some of those mid-20th century uh, black and white um, Photographs where the, the the sky is almost black in the in the back in the black and white image, and that just comes from a red filter taking the blue light out. So anything that's in the shadow area goes extremely dark, and that creates contrast. So you really do want to begin in this formal practice to train yourself to begin to identify these um, ex how this qualitative difference of the present moment looks through these different mind states, so that when you're bopping around not in formal practice, just by your experience of how it is, how it looks, how you're experiencing it, you can begin to track what kind of mind state is present. Is that making sense? So it is very much this formal practice which informs you how to do this and then the taking it out as a practice in life so that it actually begins to have effect on the, on the, the, the karma that you create so that you're constantly engaged in this uh, back and forth. You can rely on the sensing experience to know what's happening, but you cannot rely on the thing that you make it into. And so that there's a shift that happens in, in your uh, cognitive thinking where you're always checking, is this accurate? Is this perception I'm having of the present moment accurate? So that you move from this place of this is what's happening to this is what I think is happening, what do you think is happening? So that you're, then you're in a, a dialogue with other people rather than just simply responding from these runaway experiences of self that may be a, a, a muddle of defilements. <clears throat> so let's do some practice. Um, we're going to do a triple noting practice. So first we're going to note for sensory clarity, then we're going to note for the feeling tone feeling tone uh, is what is the actual quality of the experience of sensing? Is it pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? And then we're going to begin to note whether there are defilements present or the mind is equanimous with the experience of the sensing. So that would be noting for uh, craving, aversion, unconsciousness, and equanimity. I like to use the labels <coughs> wanting for craving. So craving is wanting something different than what is in the present moment. So for instance, if you liked something that was happening and then it began to end, the craving would be for it to continue and that, that would be the defilement of the mind. So this arising and passing is the normal. Aversion is not wanting what is. So if something's coming at you and you don't want it, that is the uh, aversion or not wanting. Uh, Unconsciousness means you've been pulled into the past to the future and, and you're in thinking, not in the experience of the present moment. And I like to use thinking. Uh, in order to be actually in unconsciousness, you have to get pulled away. 
So then you know that you're pulled away and you, you note that as, or you um, punch it with the, the label thinking and then come back into the present moment and begin the technique again. Equanimity is a, a long, multi-syllable word, so I like to use the word peace for that. It's, it's easy. Is that making sense? So you you note, that is, you know where your attention is, what sense gate it is, you soak into the sensing experience, and then you come out and evaluate the, evaluate the characteristics. In doing triple noting, you're going to be away from the sensing experience for as long as it takes you to make those discernments, and then you'll come back into the sensing experience. So I know that you're coming out of the sensing experience in order to evaluate it, and then you're going back into the sensing experience. That's the normal process of Vipassana. As long as you're soaking into the sensing experience, you don't need to evaluate it. It's when you come out that you make the evaluations and then go back into the sensing. No need to direct your attention in any way. We want to keep the focus narrow enough that we can really only detect one of the sense gates at a time. Um, uh, and just let your attention be drawn to whatever is interesting and then when it arrives there, soak into the sensing experience and then come out and evaluate where where you've been and then allow that to repeat. Is that making sense? Um, so let's say I have uh, the sensory activation is hearing it's, uh, and, it's, and it's in the nature of thinking about something. Right. So I know that and then it's pleasant, unpleasant or neutral. I've already noted that I'm thinking. So, what happens at the third stage? I'm just back to thinking. No, first it's ple- uh, it's uh, whether it's see, hear, or feel. The second is whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And the third is whether you're equanimous with that sense, that process, or whether there's a craving, aversion, or unconsciousness there. I'm just unclear about the unconsciousness part because if I'm if I'm if the sensory activation is some sort of it could be visual too. Let's, right. say, let's say it's auditory and it's some type of story. It's, it's thinking about something. And then I note that and I say, oh, that was an unpleasant little story that I just told myself. But now I'm. No, that wouldn't, that wouldn't be Vedna then. Is the actual experience of hearing pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? Right? Not, not the content. Not the content okay. at all. We're not at content yet. So content's the third stage. Right. Okay. So then I would. If, if it was that I was caught up in some crazy story, then that would be the, that would be unconscious at the third level. Right. Okay. If you've lost awareness of the present moment. Okay. Is that clear, So how did that go? Sometimes with meditations like that, it, it, I get this effect of when I'm looking, just when I'm focusing on my breath, and, and when I start to look for sensory experience, it, I, I, I'm able to focus better on my breath. Mm-hmm. You know, like that sen- those sensory experiences, maybe how my mind works. Don't come up as much as usual. So, if you were focusing on your breath, how were you noting it? How was I noting the sensory experiences? I was trying to do um, your your instructions of uh, I was 
like I was having a, a, a feel, and then I would uh, note it as positive, neutral, or, or negative, and then, um, and then I would take it from there and be a little lost after that. Okay. So it's fine if, if, if the breath is the only thing that's coming out, then that would be a feel. And then you'd note whether the quality of the sensation of the breath was pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And then you would note whether you wanted it or didn't want it, or you, whether you got spaced out, and, or whether you were at peace. So any, any, anything that comes up is totally fine. Yes, indeed. Because like, uh, like, I, I, I felt the light shift and it got darker and so I was like see neutral peace but then it got lighter again on my eyes and I was like, oh, I wish it were darker again. So I had been attached right. to, the, to the darker, the relief from the light but I didn't think I was. I, I could just let it go pitch black if you'd rather. Yes. If you were, if your eyes were open, you would see me waving my arm to keep the lights on. <laughs> <laughs> also, I also end up having to say, um, I end up having to say, like, see neutral peace after everything. Mm-hmm. Can I just drop that piece? <laughs> <laughs> you can do whatever you want, but why is it exhausting? It's just, it's, I mean, it's just, it's because everything, there's a visual image. Mm. So, and your attention is always there, or it moves around? Always on visual? No, it moves around, but wherever it moves, there's immediately like a... A visual response. Yeah. yeah, that's a good insight, actually. That's probably pretty true. There's a visual reaction to physical sensation or to sound. Good. Anything else? I feel like uh, my mind is constantly lying. Lying? Yeah. As if, you know, it's upsetting, like you want to stay in the present, but it's always being drawn. Right. Most of it's made up, and it's almost as if I'm making myself angry. Right. That's where it's coming from. You know? Indeed. So it's just, it's that constant state of, when you bring it back and you realize that you've been caught up thinking, you're like, why? Like, why is this happening? This is, we're in this room right now, and that's it. And then suddenly it's like, who knows where? Well, you know, and it's just like, why is this, why is there so much lying? Like this self-creation. We don't need that, you know. I do, it's one of the great questions. What is so awful about the present moment that you can't inhabit it even for a few minutes? <laughs> Seems fine. <laughs> but then you still can't stay. Part of it is boredom. For that not not activation, we live in a society that that or a culture that's constantly uh, overstimulating our our sensual experience, 
and so when we don't have that, the mind, uh, in some ways, needs to regulate regulate itself in a different way. Is it also on the flip side then the amount of craving? Because I enjoy peace. I enjoy the person. I really do. Mm-hmm. Uh, the more that I've been meditating, and it's like, why is it that my I seem like it's like self sabotage? The amount of thinking that goes on. Right. You know, so then I start to have this aversion almost towards myself. Toward your conditioning. Right. Since there's no self. Exactly. <laughs> so that is that, you know, that clinging to me, right. you know, to trying to hold on to something that's it, it's not reality, truly. What is it about the present moment that's so terrible that you can't inhabit it for even a few minutes? The thing for me, personally, uh, it might be the fixation on the unpleasant, right? Because it's never just see, hear, hear. For me, it's you hear the fan, you see the lights, you feel the chair, you feel your ankles. So there's all these different inputs at once. But my mind is much more keen to grasp on to any input that I'm perceiving as unpleasant, mm-hmm. right? So the light tones are pleasant to me, but it doesn't stick out as much as like a scratch right. on my face, right? There's a bias toward negative experience built into the right. system. I mean, it's biological. Yeah, it is indeed. It's much more important to be sensitive to the saber-toothed tiger leaping out of the bush at you than it is to the warmth of the sun on your skin. Um, So you have to, in some sense, sensitize yourself to the pleasant as well. Uh, It's one thing to do the work to relieve the unpleasant, but if you don't do the work to develop the pleasant, then you just have relieved the unpleasant and you haven't developed the pleasant. And, and so you have to mm-hmm. pay attention to the development of pleasant as well. So if you're noticing that the mind is more inclined to that, then, then I would do a, a, a practice where you're just focusing on positive experience and not noting the negative experience so that the mind can get more into balance around it. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I, I noticed my changing relationship to public unpleasant pollution. Um, and what I mean by that is um, how um, pleasant could become peace. Right. Neutral could be peace. Neutral could actually become not wanted. Right. So just how it, it kind of the impermanence, the shifting of that, the changing nature of my relationship to Good. That's the insight we're going for. There was actually something else that was really strange that related to what you said earlier about how when we have a, a, a seven from the past and a three from the present, and then we react based on the ten, um, for some reason I had something similar to that in this one. I heard a sound that I immediately identified as unpleasant. And as I kept hearing the same sound, it brought to me exactly why it was unpleasant when it would ordinarily perhaps be neutral to someone else. And then I could feel the seven in from the past and the three mm. in present and be like, oh, that's what that's about. 
Yeah, totally. It didn't take it away. I mean, it still was unpleasant, but right. the awareness of why it's unpleasant. So the separation between the old and the present is very important as a as a way of getting around the world. It's easier in meditation room than it is in the world. <laughs> How do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice. <laughs> All right. Thank you for coming. This is Deepening Your Practice. Deepening Your Practice is um, offered. Well, actually, let's talk a little bit about Deepening Your Practice. Um, I'm going to be doing some half days. There's one on Saturday. Um, it's the Meaningful Life, so we'll be talking about Meaningful Life curriculum. Um, and then we're going to be doing another meditation intervention sort of in the middle of July. And then um, I have some intensives starting in um, August. One is the Meaningful Life. It's a six-month level one intensive, so it's an informational class around um, meditation practice, working to um, explore uh, any attachment disturbances you may have. So this is a focus on John Bowlby's attachment theory and exploring it through meditation. You can find out about it on my website, metagroup.org. We're going to start a level two training in um, uh, March of next year, and the level one training is a prerequisite for that. We're also going to be doing a a meditation intervention through the addiction process intensive, starting also in August, and that's focusing on uh, the the attachment stuff, but it's in, in... a uh, relapse prevention uh, series, so focusing on the main avenues that cause relapse and then developing strategies to prevent that from happening, uh, also on the website. Um, the classes here are offered on a Donna basis. The suggested Donna here is $20, but uh, Donna is the poly word for generosity, so you're really undertaking a practice of generosity for yourself. Uh, if $20 is a good amount to give, give that. If, it's, if it doesn't mean that much to you, give it a level that's actually generous So, or what feels generous to you. If more makes sense, that's fine. If you're not resourced well enough to, to do $20, do something, but uh, at a level that feels generous and also understand that if you're not resourced, um, well, we as a community will afford the space for you to come and practice. I have a bowl out there uh, for for uh, cash. There's some bracelets out there if you need a transitionary object to walk around with. And I can also take cards if you want to. Thank you for coming, and we'll see you next Monday.